Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be going through 18d through 26. Thank you for the privilege of being able to preach this morning. I want to thank Pastor Van and Nick. I count that a privilege and a blessing. Um, I am originally from Maui, Hawaii, and I came here for Southern Seminary. And Lord willing, I look to move back to the islands to do ministry for the rest of my life. So um, there are certain passages of Scripture that grip you and don't let you go. And this passage here is one of them for me. And I pray that through the work of the Spirit, that this text here, in expose of the heart's of a Jesus-centered individual will grip you and propel you forward through the new year. So if you look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, in most of your Bibles, there's a little bit right before that that's the end of verse 18, and that's where we're going to start. It starts with, yes, and I will rejoice. So that's the beginning of our passage. It forms a paragraph here in our English translations. So Philippians 1, 18d through 26. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue for, with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Um, I've entitled this sermon, Three Prayerful Resolutions for Your New Year. Three Prayerful Resolutions for Your New Year. Before we get into it, let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and there are so many swirling desires devotions and decisions in our lives at the beginning of a new year. And we just pray that your word would guide us, inform us, correct us if necessary, and build us back up. I pray, Lord, that this word would be life to those who are lost and help to those who are saved. For the glory of Christ and our joy, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's the first Sunday of 2019. And at the start of a new year, in a sense, our lives reboot and our calendars reset. And during this time, more than any other, it's a widespread practice for people to closely evaluate their lives. They put it under a microscope. And then they look at the new year and they say, new year, new me. It's kind of communicating the hopeful optimism and the expectation of a fresh start. And individuals by the millions create something that we have come to call New Year's resolutions. These resolutions are really for the avoidance of things that you will end up regretting and the maximizing 
of happiness. They kind of seek to address the problems in your life and attack them head on in order for you to not waste your year and consequently not waste your life. Simply stated, the goal of resolutions is to help you live well and die well because everyone at the end of it all wants a life full of meaning and a death free of regret. But the question is, how do I know what resolutions to make? How do I know how to evaluate my life rightly and reorder my priorities well? How do I know what to devote myself to? How do I know what to really desire? How do I know what kind of decisions to make? And really, the possibility of unintended disaster here calls us for a warning. Because each of us in this room, I don't care who you are, how old, how young, what stage in life, each of us in this room are already resolved to follow a certain path in life. Whether we realize it or not, you already have things that you are deeply devoted to, that you really desire, and decisions that you are dead set to make, because that's just human nature. But we need a warning, because believe it or not, we can actually be wrong about things. We can be so wrong that we think we're right, but our rightness leads us to death. Proverbs 8, 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So we need help in our resolutions. We need assistance in our devotions. We need guidance for our decisions. We need an authority to tell us what we should desire. Some of us get our authorities from our own hearts, from our friends, from our family, from the world, from our TV shows, from favorite celebrities. But I hope today to show us a better way. So we come before the ultimate source of authority and direction, the authority of God, as we open his words and beg him to show us how to make the best, most lasting personal resolutions to guide our devotions, desires, and decisions. And so as an example for the Philippians in the first century and the Kentuckians, Here in the 21st century, we see here three prayerful resolutions that if we cling to, that if if they grip us, will help us to live well and at the end of our lives die well. Specifically, these three prayerful resolutions are for your new year, are for you, one, to have a driving devotion, two, to feel a dominating desire, and three, to make a dead set decision. I'm going to be honest with you. We're probably not going to get through all of them. I will end at my allotted time. We'll get through as much as we can. So first, in verses 18 through 21, my prayer for you this year is that you would have a driving devotion, the same one that this person had in this section of Scripture. Now, devotion is defined as loyalty, love, or enthusiasm for a person, place, or thing. And a drive is something that propels you forward, keeps you going, energizes you. So, admittedly, the phrase driving devotion is a little redundant because devotion by definition comes with a drive towards something or for something or about something. For example, 
I don't know how many of you are wearing Kentucky blue here, but if you're a Cats fan, you're probably going to religiously rock blue and never red because you're devoted to the Cats and it drives you to do certain actions, make certain decisions, have certain devotions. But my prayer is that you would have a driving devotion that is, takes preeminence over any hobby or sports or goals about for a new year and losing weight or having a better job or making more money or anything like that. We see here in this section, verses 18 through 21, Paul has a driving devotion for honor, fame, and recognition. But not his honor, fame, and recognition. You see, the author of today's passage is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to believers in Philippi, the Philippians, most likely from Rome, and he is in prison. He's in prison specifically for the sake of Christ. As he says here in verse 13, he says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul is suffering. He's experiencing a trial for the sake of Christ. And then he writes here to the Philippians, letting them know about his situation. Some people have called the Philippians a Word of a letter of friendship, an exhortation of friendship. And he's letting them know about his situation because he cares for them. And at the beginning of our passage here, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul here just said earlier, if you look a verse before that, in verse 18, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So Paul, here at the beginning of our section, is just continuing to tell them reasons why he will continue to rejoice. Christ is being proclaimed while he's in prison, even though people are trying to harm him. He still rejoices in that. And let me know, let me tell you right now, there's a couple more reasons why I'm going to rejoice. Even in my situation, while I'm in prison, he says here in verse 19, this is the reason why I'll continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. What I want to focus on here is that this sentence in verses 19 through 20 is incredibly complex. We're not going to get into it. There's a whole lot we can, we can glean from it. But I just want to get at one thing. What does Paul want in this situation? What does he most desire? What is he most devoted to? He says, and I will rejoice, and this is the reason why I'm going to rejoice. I know this is going to turn out for my deliverance. And then in verse 20, he explains what exactly his deliverance looks like. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope. So Paul here is saying, I'm going to rejoice because I have an eager expectation for something. And then to see the object of his expectation, we have to go a little bit more down. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I would not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, here it is, Christ will be honored in my body. So Paul tells us the object of his hope-filled anticipation while he is in chains and suffering, unconcerned about his own welfare. I'm in prison, but guys, you know why I'm going to rejoice? Because I want Jesus to be honored in my body. And then Paul tells us the circumstances under which he wants Christ to be honored in his body. The answer? Every single circumstance. Look here at the end of verse 20. 
Christ to be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, there is no foreseeable situation in which Paul would say, actually, you know that right before me? I take back the whole thing about wanting Christ to be honored in my body if I have to go through that. Paul says, there is no imaginable situation in this world in which I would not want Christ's honor to my, in my body. Because no matter what happens to me, that is my driving devotion and passion in life. It's pretty astounding. He says, whether I live and am released from prison, I want Christ honored. And whether I die and am executed, I want Christ honored. I want Christ to be honored through me because he is my ultimate and driving devotion in this world. And there's a couple things that we can learn from this. There's a couple things. But before that, we need to look at a world-changing statement in verse 21. He drops a statement that's bumper bumper sticker, life, verse, hang on your fridge in a picture frame in your living room, level significance. He says in verse 21, in a powerful and poetic summing up of his devotion, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a very interesting statement in the original language. He says it's a repetition. It rhymes. It repeats consonants and vowels. And it's, it's almost catchy to the point where you can remember it. It's literally to zain Christos. To live is Christ. To apotanein kurdos. To die, gain. There's no, there's no even verb there. He, you have to supply it. So what it literally says is, to live Christ, to die gain. And notice when he says to live is Christ, he equates living with a person. Now, I think it would be very weird for me to say, to live is Bob. Why? It just doesn't make any sense. To live is Bob? What are you talking about, man? But it would make sense if Bob were the actual embodiment of eternal life. So to say to live is Christ makes a whole lot of sense because life itself finds its definition, its existence, its vitality, its meaning in Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. To live is Christ. The worth of Christ undergirds the truth of his statement. Because Christ is infinitely worthy to live as Christ. Because Christ is infinitely worthy to die as gain. Because death is the gaining of Christ. The passion and devotion of my life. And there's a couple things we can learn here. My prayer is that you would have this driving devotion for the honor of Christ that rejoices in self-sacrifice. Suffering. We see here a call from Paul. Guys, he's suffering. He's in prison. How many times was he beaten for the sake of Christ? Stoned, shipwrecked, in cold, in heat, in danger from enemies, in danger from rivers, in danger from storms, in danger from persecution, in danger under trial, in danger under chains. And he says here, yes, Philippians, I want you to know something. I will rejoice. You see... I want you guys to notice the radical lack 
of self-concern in this passage. Paul's not like, guys, please send help. Whatever you can do, just help me. No, Paul's like, I don't care what happens to me. I don't care about my body. I don't care about my, my, my welfare. I care about Jesus being honored, whether that means my suffering and self-sacrifice. You see, the call of the Christian life, brothers and sisters, is not a call to self-preservation, but a call to self-sacrifice. Jesus did not say, follow me and I will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Jesus said, if anyone desires to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Preachers who say, follow Jesus and all your earthly troubles will go away are liars. Sometimes when you follow Jesus, all your earthly troubles multiply. Part of my prayerful resolve that you have a dying devotion for Christ would be for you to realize in the steps of Paul and the martyrs that your life is not a call to comfort, but a call to a cross. This means that the most important questions you can ask yourself in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of facing self-sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, is not how can I be most comfortable, or how can I avoid the most suffering, or how can I shelter myself from the most pain, but how can I bring the most glory to Jesus, no matter the cost? Do you see your suffering and your trials and your pain not just as an opportunity to grumble or complain or feel self-pity, but do you see them as an opportunity for the magnification of the sufficiency of Jesus in your life in trials small and extreme. The loss of a loved one, the diagnosis of cancer, chronic pain, crippling depression. Do you see this and say, I know this is hard, but I'm going to rejoice because through this, Christ will be honored. And a dying devotion to Christ rejoices in self-sacrifice. Because it upholds the greatness of Jesus in your life. Because he is satisfying you despite what you're going through. This dying devotion rejoices in self-sacrifice and suffering. Second thing about this driving devotion. This driving devotion defines your existence. The phrase to live as Christ has an existential meaning for Paul. The driving devotion of your life should be Christ because life itself is Christ. Life means Christ. This makes a whole lot of sense why Paul would say this. When you look at what Jesus did for him, hater of God, persecutor of Christians, murderer of his people, literally seeing the light on the road to Damascus so that he can say from his heart, Whatever gain I had in this life, I count as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, the driving devotion of my life. I remember when I was in, uh, in grade school, oh man, I had these crushes. It was It was bad. I was sitting next to this girl in my math class. I was obsessed with her. It was kind of creepy. And 
I remember writing in my, like, my little ballpoint pen, all right, V loves K. She was like two, two seats away from me. Ridiculous. What was I thinking? And I was just infatuated. I was obsessed, infatuated. But we, we see shadows of, this, of the type of infatuation and devotion that, that a human should have for Jesus and how humans relate to each other in love. And the kind of statements of devoted love that they make for one another when they're in a relationship, in a marriage, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend. They say things like, I can't imagine my life without you. Or, or I don't know who I am apart from you. Or, you define me. Or, I'm complete when I'm in a relationship with you. And all of this talk is just a shadow of a lasting devotion greater than any human can give you that can satisfy you for eternity and is found exclusively in a relationship through faith with the living God-man, Jesus Christ, who defines existence. And my prayer for you is that you would look at this verse to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that the reality of Christ in your life this year would be all-consuming, life-defining, demanding of your total allegiance, your absolute surrender, your wholehearted submission, and your complete devotion. Who or what defines your existence? What is your to live is fill in the blank? Is it for you to live is pleasure? Prior to Christ, that was mine. To live is pleasure. To live is my sin. To live is running away from Christ and living in rebellion against him. That's really life, doing whatever I want to do in my flesh. For others, to live is sports or a hobby. For some, to live is family and friends or to have a good reputation or to be seen as a good person. Some of these aren't even bad in themselves. But if they're life for you, and if they're enthroned in your hearts, in the place that only King Jesus should reign, they've become idols. And even good things, when they become the object of your ultimate devotion, lead to eternal destruction. My prayer for you in this new year is that you'd have a driving devotion for Christ that rejoices in self-sacrifice and suffering, and defines your existence. Well, it looks like we're going to get through one point today. That's okay. Sometimes the Spirit leads us to preach one point. But I want to close with just a word here. I have a lot of pages of notes, guys. I'm sorry. We're not going to get through it. Okay. Christians. You need a passage that guides you this year. The word of God is profitable. I just pray that this passage here, study it. Look at the other points. I pray that it would fill you with a driving devotion for the honor of Christ in all things. If you're not in Jesus, if you've not repented and turned from your sins, this doesn't apply to you. You can't fulfill this resolve, these prayerful resolutions in your own power. The entire foundation of Paul's life was the grace of God, not his own work. 
Jesus, in Paul's vision, lived a perfect life that he could never live, died the death that he deserved to die, raised from the grave in resurrection power, and will return one day to save him for eternity. And the famous statement of this passage, to live is Christ and to die is gain, only applies to those who are in Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no actual life. And outside of Christ, death is not gain. Death is the actualization of your worst fears and the judgment of God for eternity. But God has appointed a time before you die in which he extends welcoming hands of grace to wretched sinners through the sacrifice of Christ and calls you to turn from your sin and those things that you are devoted to you that lead to your destruction and to trust and throw your hope and your life in the perfect work of Christ. He calls you to repent and believe the gospel. And if you do, then for you too to live is Christ and to die would be gain. Let's pray. Jesus, You are so awesome. God, my heart breaks for those who are hearing these words and are running away from Christ, who are devoted to things that lead to their destruction and desire things that lead to judgment. But I pray, Lord, this morning that the all-satisfying, all-powerful, gracious work of Jesus would invade their lives through the power of the Spirit, and they would be saved. And I pray for the Christians here, Lord God, that they would have a driving devotion for the honor of Christ, no matter what happens to them this year, whether that be by life or by death. We ask these things in Jesus' name.